This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. Today my guest is Hank Philippi Ryan, the USA Today best-selling author of 13 novels of suspense. She has also won multiple prestigious awards for her crime fiction, including Five Agathas, Four Anthonys, and the coveted Mary Higgins Clark Award. Hank is also the on-air investigative reporter for Boston's WHDH-TV and has won 37 Emmys, 14 Edward R. Murrow Awards, and dozens of other honors for her groundbreaking journalism. National book reviews have called Hank a master at crafting suspenseful mysteries and a superb, gifted storyteller. Hank's novels have been named Best Thrillers of the Year by Library Journal, New York Post, BookBub, Pop Sugar, Real Simple Magazine, and others. Her 2019 book is the acclaimed legal thriller, The Murder List, which won the Anthony Award for Best Novel of the Year. Her book, The First to Lie, a chilling psychological standalone, garnered a star review from Publishers Weekly and is now nominated for the Anthony Award for Best Novel and the iconic Mary Higgins Clark Award. Hank's latest thriller, Her Perfect Life, mirrors her other profession, that of television news reporter. Hank and I discuss how the idea of the plot came to her, what about her protagonist, Lily Atwood, mirrors her own on-air career, and how she overcomes the doubt every author faces writing that next novel. I fell in love with Lily. She is both human and has that thread of tragedy running through her. I mean, here she is an award-winning on-air television reporter with a seemingly perfect life, a job she loves that earns her incredible celebrity status. At the same time, she's got this wonderful, loving seven-year-old Rowan. I wanted to adopt her. I'm sure everybody will. Um, And she goes to this, you know, posh private school, perfect house, beautiful neighborhood. But there's those dark little secrets that Lily has. And um, it includes the fact that her older sister, Cassie, disappeared when she was Rowan's age. Hank, how does the grief over the long-missing sister, Cassie, color the rest of Lily's life and her actions? Oh, such an interesting question, because that is really the core of this story, is the grief and the uncertainty. I mean, as the book begins, and we're not giving anything away, but as the book begins, we realize that Lily hasn't seen her sister for more than 20 years and has no idea what happened to her. And that sort of emptiness, that sort of loss, that sort of fear of, you know, was she, did she run away? Was she abducted? Was she kidnapped? Is she alive? Is she dead? Was she happy? Is she sad? Is she safe? She doesn't know. She just doesn't know. And Lily turned out to be an investigative reporter and her whole life is finding answers. And this is the one thing she can't find the answer to. And it's interesting because Cassie is gone and missing, and we don't know what happened to her. But Lily, the reporter, is very visible. You can find Lily in a second. So one key question for her is, if her sister Cassie is alive, why doesn't she come find Lily? So it's just a real juxtaposition of someone being hidden or gone or dead or lost And this endless, endless search for an answer in someone whose life is built around finding answers. So every day, Lily is doing investigative reporting, coming up with big stories, searching out the answers and putting them on TV. But this one question that she cannot answer is the one that really 
sponsor. And if anyone else finds out how she's connected to Cassie, that may ruin her perfect image. So is she better off not knowing where Cassie is and just leaving it all alone? Or can she ignore her passion and desire to find out what happened to her only sibling? Right. Um, Lily and her producer Greer have an odd relationship. They work together, shaping the stories that Lily reports on, but they aren't really more than arm-length acquaintances. Um, Greer assumes this has to do with Lily's ego as well as her career aspirations. At the same time, Greer, who seems to have no life at all, is a bit jealous and as distrusting of Lily as Lily is of her. Um, For the rest of us who aren't in the biz, how, how loyal are producers to their talent and vice versa? It's a really fascinating uh, relationship because a producer and reporter don't choose each other, but they are joined so seamlessly because one's success is the other's success and one's failure is the other's failure. And so you're constantly watching out for each other and you have to learn to trust your producer. It's not like you choose a friend or a spouse. This is someone who the news director has said to you, you're going to work with this person side by side and your reputations and success depend on each other, go. Now, the delineation of the of the workload is very interesting because a producer does research, does, you know, essentially reporting, does some interviews, does story ideas, does the scheduling. The reporter does the writing and does the performing and is the on-air face. So when you see a big investigative story on television, you'll see the face of the reporter and it looks like they must have done the whole thing on their own. But in television, you can't do it on your own. It's a big story. It's a big team with a producer and an editor and a reporter and an executive producer and a news director and a whole team of people that goes into making sure that the story you put on the air is absolutely perfect. And there's that word perfect, because as a reporter and as a producer, you can never make a mistake. You can never use the wrong name. You can never choose the wrong word. You can never do the math wrong. You can never make a miscalculation or an error. And if you do, millions of people will see it. And that is the end of you. So the tightrope that you have to walk of perfection um, is absolutely relentless. And the stress is endless, too. But think about someone who might feel that they do a lot of the work and get no credit. And we can all name people who are on TV, network correspondents, but we can't name any of the producers, can we? And, no. that, and, you know, and that is the question that a producer has to ask. Can I do a very difficult job and essentially not get any of the public credit? And that's how Greer feels about Lily. And it's an understandable feeling, but it's what you sign up for as a producer. So one of the things that I hope savvy readers like you, and you clearly digged up on this, is just so great, is that a lot of what we hear about Lily is from Greer. So be careful what you decide based on what someone else says. Exactly. Which brings me to the anonymous source, Mr. Smith. <laughs> um, he's been feeding Lily leads that have helped build her reputation. The twist in the story, and I won't give anything away, but it comes when 
Mr. Smith insinuates himself into the biggest story of Lily's life. For that matter, it is the story of Lily's life. How did you come up with this character who, as it turns out, is more than just a device in the story? Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, this is one of the first elements of the story that really um, I thought could grow into a good one. A reporter relies on secrets. A reporter relies on sources. A reporter relies that someone has a secret and someone else will tell it for some reason because no one tells a secret without a reason, right? And Lily's job is to listen to people who might have a reason for telling a secret if they're a disgruntled employee or someone who worries that their boss is taking the money or someone who worries that the system isn't working properly, a whistleblower or a truth teller, someone who comes to a reporter and says, I can't make this public, but you can. And there is a lot of secrecy that goes into that because a whistleblower or someone who is a source, you know, might definitely be harmed completely be harmed if it's known that they're the ones who told. So a lot of what reporters do is protect people, protect the people who are offering them secrets. The other thing that is important to remember is that a reporter doesn't just take what someone says on the phone and put it on TV. You know, there's a lot of research, endless research and endless reporting and endless sourcing that goes into finding out whether what a source tells them is true. So when Lily and Greer get their ideas from this anonymous source, that's standard, that's every day. That's what you cross your fingers and hope for, that someone will call you and give you a good story that then you can research and investigate and follow up on. But then I started wondering, what if a source started telling the reporter secrets about her own life? Clearly this guy has some insight into something because he's given them stories that pan out. So. If it sounds like he knows something about Lily, Lily wonders if he's probably right about that too. And if he knows about her missing sister, how much would Lily risk to find her when she knows she's also risking giving up her aura of perfection if Cassie is found and the truth about Cassie, whatever that might be, is told. Again, it comes back to, is it better for Lily to know what she's always wanted to know? Or is it better for Lily never to know and have no one ever hear about it and to keep the secret secret? And that's what she has to decide. Right. Toward the middle of the book, initially you tell the story from two points of view. You've got Greer, which is done in first person, and you've got Lily, which is told in third person. In shaping the story. How did you make the determination to do it this way versus the other way around or first person for both or third person for both? (laughs) Yeah, I knew I was going to have to answer this question at some point from some smart reader. And then I knew I was going to have to confess that I really heard Greer's voice in my head. And I thought, oh, my dear, she's going to have to be in first person. And that was a difficult choice because it might not be the obvious choice. You might, you know, someone might have thought, well, you know, Lily's the main character, so we should be in Lily's head. Um, And Greer is, you know, the character who's a little more unpredictable. So we can't hear it from her point of view. But I wanted Greer to be powerful. 
I wanted you to listen to Greer because Greer is the voice of the public, isn't she? Greer is the voice of the description of who they think Lily is. And Lily's perfect life is prescribed by what people think of her. So now we get to hear about her from what Greer thinks about that. For better or for worse, we're learning something about Lily through Greer's perspective. And that is what Lily is fighting too, her whole life, what someone else thinks about her. And that's what she's trying to protect herself from and her daughter from and her life from is everybody else's expectations. So I used, I used Greer as the mirror of a person who thinks about Lily from the outside, but doesn't really know her. Exactly as you were saying earlier, they're not really friends, but they work together constantly. And it feels like they're friends, just like the viewers feel like they're Lily's friends because they see her every day in their living room. They see her on TV. They feel like they know her, but they don't know her. And Greer doesn't know her either. She just thinks she does. Toward the middle of the book, a third point of view also told in third person comes into play, and that is Cassie's point of view. Through it, the reader learns Cassie's part of the story. In fact, because she's the catalyst of everything that's happened in Lily's life, both the successes and her failures, it's a very important part of the story. When did you decide to allow her to tell her own story? And also, how did you decide when this was going to happen? The essential part of this story is what happened to Cassie. From moment one in the book, I want the reader to wonder what happened to Cassie um, and speculate about that. I have to say that when I started writing the book, I didn't know what happened to Cassie. I didn't know. So I just thought, well, let's just see. Uh, it was a tightrope, I have to tell you, because I but I knew that I would eventually come to that in the story. So at some point, the point you mentioned, I sort of typed chapter, whatever it was, and then Cassie's story just came out. It was sort of the rhythm and the music of the story that it was time for the reader to begin to get some kind of insight into what might have happened to Cassie and why what happened happened. You know, you, when you're writing a book, you can't just say on page 300, oh, here's what happens and here's a whole bunch of explanation and exposition about what this whole book was about. So I wanted you to be on the road with Cassie to see what happened to her, what she had to deal with, what decisions she had to make um, up to a certain point, of course, um, to make it be understandable at the end of the book why she did what she did. Because Lily's not sure if Cassie is good or bad. We're, Lily's not sure if Cassie is safe or dangerous or even alive. And I think in a suspense novel, part of the suspense comes when the reader knows something that the characters in the book don't know. So we're learning things in the book about what happened to Cassie, things that Lily doesn't know. And that's what makes for the dramatic irony, I think, of the book is that we understand more than Lily does. But, you know, because it's a novel of suspense, we don't know the whole story, but there's a beginning of understanding. And that's why, that's why I wanted to bring Cassie in so readers could know her and understand her and root for her as well. 
Yeah, you've always been a very instinctual writer in the sense that I know that you are more of a pantser than a plotter, but that you actually immerse yourself in the story so I can thoroughly comprehend why all of a sudden Cassie's voice would come to you and, and she would say, here's what happened to me. <laughs> you know? But I'm glad you doled it out the way you did in parallel with what was happening with Lily and Greer, because I think it was important that we see the thread of your story, all three threads, kind of build that tapestry that you were going toward for your catalyst at the end. I forgot this is a podcast, so I'm just nodding. I'm sitting <laughs> at you. I forgot you can't see me and nobody can see me. But thank you. I'm glad it worked. I, you know, I love your choice of the word instinctual because the instinctiveness of, um, of writing a book is something that's very scary to me. You know, you're right. I don't have an outline. And I sort of what gets me to the typewriter every day, the computer, is say, I, I think I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what's going to happen next. And the only way for me to find that out is to write it. Now, that's scary because, you know, at page 200, you're like, oh, I have 200 pages to go. What is going to be on those pages? I don't know. And so I just can't think about the ending. I just think about what happens next. But at some point, like a big ocean liner turning around and heading back to port, um, I begin to see what that's what I've written, what it all means, and it begins to move in the other direction to the closure of the book. And I, I wait for that moment. I yearn for that moment in every book I write when the things that I've set out at the beginning braid together and flow toward an ending that I didn't even know was coming. So people say, oh, wow, the ending of Her Perfect Life, you really surprised me. And I say, say yeah, well, wasn't that a surprise? You know, who'd have thought that would happen? So I have to remember every day as a writer not to fear that I don't know what's going to happen. Just as for the reader, that's the fun part. I remind myself and I just and I just keep going. So I'm, I'm delighted to hear that you were intrigued by that. Thank you. In this story, no one is whom, whom you think they are. Um, and rarely are their actions tempered by logic. <laughs> There's a lot of emotion that each of them have in the decisions that they make as the story progresses. I would even go as far to say that Mr. Smith is just as driven by his emotions as everyone else in the book. As a reporter, what would you have done differently if you had been approached by a Mr. Smith? Oh, well, you know, that's a great question because remember what this is, is a psychological thriller. And a psychological thriller means people behave based on what they want and what they desire and what their motivations are and how they can use um, psychology or thoughts and feelings and wants and needs as weapons, you know, emotions as weapons, desires as weapons. You know, the psychological devastation is much scarier sometimes or equally to a gun or a knife. The threat of psychological damage, the dangling of something that you've always wanted for your whole life, Mr. Smith comes to Lily and indicates that he knows where her sister is. And what would you do if you'd lived your entire life asking a question and someone arrives with the answer, 
you might not make the most logical of decisions. Now, one thing I love about Lily is that she realizes that some of the things she's she's doing are taking risks. And she questions herself about it. Like, why am I doing this? To find Cassie. Okay, that's the most important thing. If she's out there, she doesn't know. I mean, what if this person is lying? But what if she decides that he's lying and she doesn't do what he says, and then he's telling the truth? That's the puzzle for her. That's the conundrum. That's the decisions that she has to make. So if someone said to me, if you come with me, I'll show you your sister. I would say, um, really? Oh, oh, but if you are Lily, with Lily's psychology and Lily's childhood um, trauma, I want to say, of her sister being gone and her mother crying and the police giving up and her whole life is about answers and now there's a possible answer, what are you going to do? So that's why I write psychological suspense, is how our brains work and how our desires affect our decision-making and what we might do to get what we want. And that is what this book is about. Lily and Greer and Cassie and Mr. Smith, they all want something. And what would they do to get what they want? You know, guilt is a powerful thing and it motivates us to do things. Love is a powerful thing and it motivates us to do things and revenge is a powerful thing and it motivates us to do things and that is the essence of her perfect life perfect <laughs> thank you hank one last question what are you working on now and can we look forward to it in a year i hope what am i working on now you know as we were talking earlier today josie on this podcast and i was talking about how i write a book and one track of my mind was saying you should remember you said this you should remember that you're not afraid you should remember that you do it day to day because i'm sitting in the middle of a book of a new book right in the muddle in the middle and i'm thinking i have no idea where this book is going no idea and I will never know and I don't know how to do this and I forgot how to write a book and why did I ever do this and whose idea was this anyway um, and when I told my husband that he said that's what you always say and I said okay but this time it might be true this time it really might be true and he says that's what you always say too so this has been great Josie you're wonderful your questions are perfect you know, I, I love talking with you and it really came at the perfect time because as I said, I'm so in process and you have really crystallized for me why I do what I do and why you do what you do um, and how we're all sort of in this together. So I'm trying to remember now when I get off this podcast and start writing my words for the day, I'm going to remember our discussion. So I'm grateful for that. Um, and try to give myself a little courage that um, it's word by word by word by word by word, and eventually I'll find out what the story is. I've got to find out in about a month because that's when I that's when my deadline is. So yes, the book will be out this time next year. Um, I'm not quite sure what the title will be. I have an idea, but um, I'll let you know as soon as I know. But but working on this book and then a book after that, and crossing fingers as I always do that yet again. Um, this is my 14th book and somebody wrote the first 13 and it was me and that means I can do it again. Uh, we have no doubt on our end, so we're there for you. Thank you. Watch for Hank Philippi Ryan's next thriller, Her Perfect Life, coming in September. It's already received starred reviews in Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, which called it a superlative thriller.
This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.